Hey, this is Alan Valancourt. I'm a DevOps solutions architect with 4850 Labs. And one of my roles here at 4850 Labs and Veristore is helping a lot of our clients with automation, DevOps practices, tooling, things along that line. Hi, my name is Grace Alliday. I'm a senior solutions architect at Veristore Systems. I've been with the company seven and a half years. I've come primarily from an infrastructure operations background and uh, in more recent years have been working with customers around orchestration, automation tool sets, hybrid cloud management. Old dog trying to learn new tricks. Hey, that's that's what we're here for. Yeah, today's uh, topic, we're going to talk about uh, Ansible, some kind of best and preferred practices. And, uh, you know, it's great, you know, Gray, with you being at Veristore for seven years and in seven years in the IT world, it's like dog years, right? It's like forever, it seems. And Absolutely. over seven years, seven years ago, Ansible, I don't believe, I think it came out in 2012, wasn't really even out there. So automation aspect of things was probably nil. When's uh, kind of the first time you probably saw or heard about automation infrastructure as code type of stuff? Yeah, I mean, the, the earliest sort of iterations of it that I got exposed to, despite feeling like an old old dog, right? I got kind of into the IT world as a, uh, as a salesperson back in 2007, working for a reseller. And really the first exposure I had to it was kind of primarily bash scripting and PowerShell. So yeah, that was, uh, that was so really what constituted automation at the time. Yeah, likewise here, right? Doing some bash scripting, hacking PowerShell, and or, you know, even before PowerShell, bat files remember those uh, windows batch files yeah <laughs> which was even even worse so you know and it kind of brings us in line what we're talking about ansible and for those that are listening that might not be familiar you know ansible is an automation framework it's an open source project it's a very popular one it's growing rapidly in fact i think over the last year or two talking and looking at stats there's like 48,000 commits on github Probably like a year or two ago, it was like 30,000 or less. Module-wise, and modules are pieces that you kind of helps you extend what Ansible can do. There's like, there's over 3,000. It's, it's kind of mind-boggling. And I saw a stat from Red Hat a while back, and it's like hockey stick on its growth and adoption in the industry, which is awesome because automation is critical in today's environment. Yeah, and I think just kind of looking at it from the standpoint of people who are new getting into automation with Ansible, one of the advantages that we've seen is just that even in the realm of PowerShell scripting, it was always kind of esoteric. There was the guy who was good at PowerShell, and he was the repository for tribal knowledge where automation with PowerShell was concerned, where Ansible being based on a foundation of YAML is really designed to be legible for anybody. So you can pick up a playbook, look at it, and pretty quickly, if it's written appropriately, understand what it's doing to what resources. Yeah, that analogy of the PowerShell and the guy hacking it. And I've done a few workshops and Gray, you've been involved in a couple of these workshops. And one of the questions that we like to ask is how many of you still have these scripts sitting on your computer, right? Your version, you know, source control or versioning is like copy of copy one, <laughs> things along that line. And we're going to touch a little bit on that. And I think on some of our best practices and kind of preferred practices of if you're jumping into Ansible and you're either a newbie, you're quote seasoned professional, even though it's been out four or five years, you know, I still consider myself fairly mid-level, even though I've been hacking on it for a couple of years now, there's so much to learn. So hopefully as we talk today, this is going to be, you know, helpful for you guys. And I think we'll have the ability to have uh, some of these, uh, some of this information available as well offline. So you don't have to sit here and take notes and try to figure out, hey, what was that tip? <laughs> Let's kind of jump right in there. 
and everything. I was at a recently, I was at a Red Hat technical exchange down in Orlando. And it was uh, one of the sessions I went to was a Ansible practices, preferred practices for engine and tower. And some of that content was kind of like, oh, wow. You know, one, it was a, it was, I'll say a sold out session. There was a standing room only, but some of the stuff in there was really, uh, really interesting things. I'm like, wow, I didn't realize that. It was like 40 some pages of slides of 40 some slides. Obviously, we're not going to talk all of that today, but just kind of high level wanted to kick something really quickly off as folks are using Ansible and jumping into it. You know, you're writing in YAML and the, the neat thing about YAML is that you can write it in plain English. You can easily describe years ago when software coding, it was kind of the way of building things that were. Uh, I'll say encrypted, but a little ambiguous on naming functions and features and classes and things like that, which made it hard to understand. If you got, I built something, I hand it to Gray, and then you're like trying to interpret what it is. And right off the top is when you're building out Ansible playbooks and your stuff, put in your task names that you build with, use meaningful task names, not something like install software, you know, describe what you're trying to do because those task names as you're running the playbook, you'll see those come across. And if someone's looking at that code and they can read it, they're like, oh, I know what this is. This installs a database or this sets up a firewall rule. And it really helps define and explain it in a little bit easier terms for someone that might be coming along after you. Yeah, it's, it seems like part of the core of a lot of the style guides is continuing to reinforce the parts of Ansible that make it easy for people to adopt, you know, rather than kind of slipping back into one of the examples we had talked about was install Apache, right? You know, it specifically call the task install Apache, right? It, spell it out explicitly what it does and then allow that to provide clarity. And a lot of this, for someone who's new, I tell this to folks in our workshops, because the workshops, if you've been one, they're, they're kind of, or you're new to Ansible, there's so much to learn and it can be that drink from the fire hose kind of, I don't know if you're, <laughs> if you, you remember the Weird Al movie, UHF, VHF or whatever, oh, yeah. and uh, <laughs> the janitor is like, you get a drink from the fire hose. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, people, I think, feel that way <laughs> when they're going through Ansible, like, blah so much. How am I supposed to remember this? It's the pick small pieces and continuously practicing is what is going to help you get better at your job, better at building things out. Definitely. So do you want to talk a little bit maybe about inventories? I know that comes up a lot in the workshops that we put on as far as naming conventions and inventories, kind of how we populate them, uh, dynamic sources versus static inventories. Does that sound good? Yeah, definitely. Jump on it. All right. So one of the things that, that comes up a lot, it seems like when our, you know, we're talking to potential clients is that there's this desire for, for inventory files to be dynamically populated out of AD or what, you know, whatever other CMDB tool you might be using. I think one of the, one of the messages that we've been trying to promote is that not letting that stop you from the initial standup. It's okay to take an iterative approach to, um, to kind of rolling these tools out. And I think coming from the infrastructure side, we have this tendency to try to pre-optimize, right? We want to identify the absolute best way to do something right out of the gate, hone in on that, and then execute on it. But sometimes just in the process of learning these tools, using inventory files as an example, you know, it's an opportunity to do the static inventory thing initially, and then move to uh, move to dynamically populated inventories as you go, but let that be kind of an iterative process. And that's huge because we can spend so many cycles building out inventory or 
the minutia of things and not get a whole lot of work done. <laughs> and then when you run it against this massive inventory that you might have and something breaks, it increases your complexity of trying to troubleshoot something. Whereas having that, you know, on top of inventory is as, as you guys, guys and girls start digging more, breaking up that inventory into children, groups, subgroups, you know, you can be kind of however tagged. Inventory files are based on the, an I and I format. So you can have children and parent relationships and things like that, which can really, again, like naming a task that's simple and easy to read when you open up an inventory file and, and looking at it and saying, oh, wow, these are the Atlanta data center. This is the Las Vegas data center and ways that you can kind of uh, split some of your inventory nodes out there that you're working with. And I think to that point, you know, sort of inheriting some of the same naming convention wisdom from from what we were talking about in tasks, right? The idea of using uh, human meaningful names rather than IPs or DNS names, right? It's just, hey, if I've got a particular class of server, I can use that alias to call, you know, my DB1 Ansible host, DB1 Ansible host, and then translate that to its, its relevant IP rather than just having an inventory populated with this wall of IP addresses. Yes, the wall of IP that you're all trying to figure out. Back in the day, it was cool to know all your IPs and subnets, but nowadays it's like, man, let's, let's use DNS, right? <laughs> That's what DNS is for, and uh, Ansible is really good at leveraging some of that. You know, and it kind of brings me along, probably the first thing uh, we should, probably should have mentioned here is folks, if you're, you, you know, you're changing files, right? You're modifying files, inventory files, either statically, dynamically, playbooks, and you're saving these changes is to put it in source control. That's probably, probably the very, I guess I would say really the number, in my mind, uh, close to the number one thing that you probably need to do. You know, for developers, that's something that they're used to. They've been doing source control, SCM, Git, Mercurial, whatever, subversion, hopefully not today. But operations teams, some of that is new and that can be a struggle, it can be really intimidating. But man, so you, you don't want version one, version two sitting on your laptop and then you're on vacation and somebody needs it. It needs to be in source control somewhere. As we move toward infrastructure as code as an ideal and something that we're really trying desperately to put it in practice, you have to be able to sort of rationalize what's gone on, right? If you make a change and something breaks, being able to address that in kind of an iterative fashion is really going to save you a lot of heartache in the end. And on top, if you're an enterprise that has uh, tools like Ansible Tower or open source uh, upstream, you know, li living on the edge junkie and you're using AWX, then... <laughs> yeah those tools re kind of require uh, source control because that's where some of the jobs and templates and playbooks that it pulls from, it's looking for a source control uh, system to pull this data down from. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a difficult lesson to learn, but you know, one, <laughs> one worth having learned for, uh, yeah. you know, you know people. a while back talking to an operations, yeah. this is kind of one of those, you know, I'll say wall of shame, but the things we've all probably done at one time, you know, as you're learning Git and using public sources like GitHub, hopefully enterprise level, you guys are using, you know, private repositories, but kind of segues into a little bit on, on a security side when you're using source control for your Ansible stuff, make sure you guys don't put in any keys, private keys, secrets, things like that. The quickness, if you're using GitHub and or Bitbucket or GitLab or something public, the speed of which things can get read from bots and then utilized or hacked is, is really rapid. So make sure 
as you guys do that, you create a good ignore file and keep some of those secrets out of your playbooks, among other things, for sure. Definitely. We'll jump a little bit more, kind of back forth a little bit on the, the security side of things in, in Ansible. Some folks think, you know, hey, I've got Ansible engine and, you know, can I have real base access, access control with that and kind of the security encrypted secrets. And it, well, Ansible engine itself does have vault, which is not the best. It's base 64 encryption. So it's really not true, I guess, encryption. If you're using engine, there is no rule base access control, but if you're using tower, it has that tie that into your security groups, build out before you kind of roll out in a lot of technology and the DevOps stuff requires a lot of pre-work as we were in a meeting yesterday, Greg, you know, that they talk about a lot of engineering work right up front. And I think even with tower deployments and Ansible is to plan that up front, you know, your roles, your groups, your organizations, and that will really save a lot of pain and headache as you guys uh, grow and start adding things as well. Yeah, wholeheartedly agree on that front. Uh, you know, I think it's it's one of those places too where the principle of least privilege from a security perspective really tends to clash organizationally with the ease of you know what we get used to in the open source software world. So Tower Tower is a way to provide some governance and provide some control to sort of moderate the potential some of the potential risks associated with leveraging these automation tools. One thing I like to tell folks. As you're building out playbooks, you're kind of, you know, starting things off. And, you know, some of the, you know, these preferred and best practices, every organization is going to have kind of their different idea and thought of it. And some you're just going to learn. As an example, one of the, quote, preferred practices is using a generic way of installing packages and letting Ansible kind of handle that. That was kind of new to me because I always was like, hey, what if we just, uh, you know, if we're using a CentOS-based, RHEL-based system, I'm going to use Yum. But then, you know what, that will break if I have that playbook to try to run that on a Debian-based system, Ubuntu or, or whatever else, because Yum doesn't work. It uses app-get. And so there is a kind of generic module out there that basically lets Ansible choose it based on what the host is. And, you know, I've been using Ansible for a couple of years now and I just learned that. I'm like, oh, that's actually really kind of cool. Didn't, didn't realize you could do that. Again, you know, there's so much to learn. And as you write playbooks and things get built out, that Ansible is actually really good at times of letting you know, hey, instead of doing that, try using this module instead. It seems like the sort of thing that's going to improve portability too. I mean, that it's one of the lessons of kind of the, operations management methodologies of yesteryear from the business world is efficiency comes from reducing rework. So the opportunities to kind of standardize, you know, use something generic instead of something specific or certainly represent a significant time savings value where they're, where they're appropriate. Let's jump into uh, talk a little bit about variables. That is a huge thing. In fact, I think Ansible has 16 levels of variable precedence within it and that can be a little bit, again, like some things are new, intimidating and trying to figure out how do we manage variables, inputting variables and troubleshooting, which is a, which is a big thing. So understanding precedence and setting yourselves up in your plays and playbooks, kind of standardizing how you guys set things up with regards to variables, where it goes. 
stay consistent in that. Initially, it's probably going to be all over the place. You're going to have it in a playbook. You might have it in an include file. You might have it on a host or an inventory file. But as you mature and start doing more standardized and kind of pick a place and kind of go from that, I think it'll be uh, <laughs> saving you a lot of troubleshooting it and scratching of the head for sure. I think one of the advantages of Ansible for new users is just that there is such prolific and good documentation. I mean, that's been something I've leaned heavily on uh, in getting started is just docs.ansible.com, right? You, you spend a lot of time in there and uh, kind of understanding that hierarchy of uh, variable precedence and whatnot is uh, for, for the new person, it can be kind of intimidating. But if you if you sort of follow the style guides and try to peripherally understand what's going on in uh, in that documentation, as you're kind of getting it up and running, I think it'll you know, build good habits that you can kind of move forward with without necessarily having to have a perfect academic understanding of the underlying principles. Very true. In fact, you know, if you're a command line junkie and doing everything, you're like, I don't want to open up the website to look up. You can always run the Ansible dash doc command from while you're working, you know, on the command line and it will return back and you can pretty much pull any uh, Ansible documentation that's on the web. You can actually pull that from a command line. Little, little tip there to kind of help keep you on task on, on track and <laughs> going on there. See what else trying to think some other quick ideas from a best practice aspect of things. There's so much and it's like, you know, kind of where to go using Galaxy. Gray, you want to touch a little yeah. bit on, on Galaxy and how that can be really beneficial from, a, uh, from that aspect? Sure. So one of, the, one of the things, one of the resources that's out there is, uh, is called Ansible Galaxy, right? And, you know, it is, a, um, it is a way to kind of get a head start you know, taking advantage of the of the work that people have done in the community and some sort of validated stand-ups, right? So it's it you see a lot of modules and playbooks published by um, community members, published by OEMs, right? So in addition to the GitHub repositories that are out there to uh, to leverage Galaxy, you know, provides this uni uh, sort of universal resource for pre-validated pre-validated tools and uh, sort of starting points. If you're unsure of where to jump off from in a new effort, right? You can you can go to Galaxy and you can search, you know, based on tags and keywords, filter it however you want. And essentially you'll get these sort of pre-canned resources that'll help you get started with uh, with your playbooks. It can save you a lot of time. And even if it's not perfectly one-to-one -one what you want to do, it can still give you the uh, the bones, kind of the underpinnings of, uh, of what you're trying to work toward. Yeah, Galaxy's got, is, is very valuable. And even to the point where leveraging, you know, don't reinvent the wheel. We like to do that in IT many times, especially operations uh, folks, even de developers. You know, we, we like to, I want to build my, uh, you know, do it from scratch. And when, you know, time is money and you're trying to optimize, looking at Galaxy, finding well-run plays out there and roles that you can pull down and either use directly, import them in. They'll make, make your playbooks a lot cleaner as well as you can say, man, this almost does what I need. And then you can kind of tweak it, right? Write your own role, write your own, uh, build your own interface, leveraging that as a template. So it takes you 90% of the way, then you do the 10% that kind of fits your environment. Again, save you a lot of time and, and headache kind of down the road. You know, it kind of brings me in line, you know, Gray, as we, you know, I don't say wrap up, but I want to kind of, I guess, talk a few things on some kind of user stories, <laughs> what sure. you're seeing from your side of the fence when we're talking to clients, adoption or, you know, 
kind of pain points or, or whatever else. We have a number of customers that are in varying degrees of their journey with Enhanceable. In fact, I was down in Atlanta a couple weeks ago meeting with one where they've got one guy who's, they're doing engine, they've got a couple hundred devices that they're trying to automate. Right now, they're a big window shop, but which you know runs well on Ansible as well. And everything is very manual. And so what they're trying to do is leveraging engine, leveraging Ansible to convert those manual processes into playbooks. Sometimes I get questions from folks like, are we too late? Man, <laughs> I don't think you're ever too late. There's so much out there and from an enterprise level and even mid-market and a lot of clients, still a lot of work to be done in that world. Yeah, it's it, for sure. It, I think, you know, really it's only just begun. For a lot of our customers, there's this this difficulty in saying, okay, the, the thing I'm trying to do day one is just understand the technology. And then at the same time, they want to be pursuing, I mean, our general recommendation is pick higher value, higher intelligence automation projects. It's not just running running updates on on services on a system or two using ad hoc commands, right? You want to, as, you know, as professionals interested in our continuing value to organizations, we want to be doing more high value automation. It's just, that's, that's kind of the challenging balance point between taking it on board personally, right? From sort of a bottom up approach, making sure that my, you know, my operations guys, my, my devs are, are using these tools in a meaningful way, but at the same time, having to really move the needle within the organization in terms of what we're getting done. That's the challenge we're all still facing. So much to do, so much to automate, only so much amount of time, you know, tools like Ansible and, and others make life <laughs> so much easier. It's just, uh, it's like, when do I have the bandwidth to do all this? You know, we had a client that had, they purchased a, you know, a couple hundred nodes, but yet there was very little adoption. It's, it's one of those things where, you know, if you, if you get the tool, it, there is a learning curve like anything, but man, the, the kind of return on investment, the payback of that, of automating processes within your, your company is, is huge. And some folks are like, they don't know where to begin. And I tell, I like to, when we do workshops to ask this question, like low hanging fruit, right? So find something simple that you're doing every day that you're touching doing it by rote and, you know, or you got some Word doc or SharePoint file or Confluence or something and kind of use that as your test case for automating it. And it, it'll definitely save you some time. It's exciting. Yeah. You know, as you play more with it, it, it grows and along that line. One of the pieces of advice you gave me probably two and a half years ago now was just get involved in the community, right? Uh, go out to the Ansible subreddit, get a Linux Academy subscription. There are a lot of resources out there. And I think getting conversant in the language of automation, there are a lot of good resources you can lean on being new to it. Well, I know we could, you know, we could probably go on forever and maybe, you know, I think this would be really kind of cool to do, uh, you know, another a part two down the road on talking a little bit more on some of this automation stuff with regards how it's affecting what we're seeing and everything. But I, you know, at least I think for now, this, hopefully these, uh, these tips, this information is very helpful for you guys. Love to talk. In fact, uh, I was on conversation even this morning, kind of segue into that is we had somebody saying, Hey, we want to leverage Ansible to provide a kind of security audit type of stuff. And we're kind of walking through some scenarios with that. 
you know, we're here as, as a resource at Veristore 4850. You know, we, we kind of live in this. We see it from a lot of different clients and love to be able to help you guys out for sure on this line. Gray, you got anything else there? Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's, that really mirrors kind of what I see from the operations side as well, right? I mean, we, we see customers wanting to use the tool in meaningful ways. We see, you know, automation as a way to, you know, reduce human error, improve security, make all of our lives a bit easier. It's certainly something we're, we're talking to a lot of people about and continues to be of interest. So look forward to the next conversation. Yeah, sounds good. And again, thank you all. Appreciate your time and uh, looking forward to another conversation.